we have a very specific way of working. If you're in a working group and you do not like what is happening, you have to say the words, I object. It can't just be like a strong argument. You have to, it's like a, it's like a magic incantation. You have to say the words, I object. Hello everyone, welcome to Green.io, the podcast for responsible technologists building a greener digital world, one bite at a time. Our guests from across the globe share insights, tools and alternative approaches enabling people within the tech sector and beyond to boost digital sustainability. Quick note for my European-based listeners, you are invited to the first Green.io conference in Paris on December the 8th for free. I partnered with API Days to bring you an amazing lineup starting with Aurore Stefan, Tristan Nito, Sio Alves da Costa, and all the teams involved in the 2023 Sustainable Digital Challenge. The link to register is in the episode notes. Hope to see many of you. In the small but growing community of people coding with our environment at art, the GSF, the Green Software Foundation, is getting a lot of traction. Big companies and universities are joining almost on a weekly basis. Dozens of open source projects around the globe participated in its 2022 hackathon. The numbers of LinkedIn followers have doubled in less than a semester, if not a quarter. And a quick glance on the Green Software Foundation website will give you a good idea of all the tools and methods they provide to decarbonize software. But what's in it for a software engineer or a designer who could get lost in this vibrant library? Where to start and what to use for which needs? What are the limitations of these tools today? I seized the opportunity of meeting Asim Hussain, the Green Software Foundation Director at API Days London in September, where we were both talking about tech sustainability, to ask him to join the show. Between fellow podcaster, because Asim and Chris Adams are the regular hosts of the Great Environment Viables podcast, he gladly accepted. And voila. Hi, Asim. Thanks a lot for joining Green.io today. Thanks, Gail. Thanks for having me. So, Asim, before we deep dive into the GSF tools, I have the question I wanted to ask you since I've started following your work. What's the connection between Microsoft, Intel, JP Morgan, the European Space Agency, and psychedelic medicine? <laughs> uh, there's no, well, there's hopefully no connection between uh, between them and them and <laughs> them and psychedelic medicine, other than the fact that I was kind of employed. No, I just well, I've I've, I've had I've had a, I've had a long career uh, working in various areas, including you know space and finance, and uh, for a long stretch, I was actually um, self-employed. Uh, teaching and creating courses in teaching. Then I joined Microsoft uh, six, seven years ago, I think, in the newly, they recently reformed the developer relations division. And uh, I was just doing, I was a JavaScript developer relations, focusing on the audience. But then I eventually led uh, EMEA. So I was the EMEA regional lead for developer relations over there. And honestly, there was this kind of like an opportunity that the whole organization shifted. Uh, there, was a, there was a big reorg. Everybody was struggling to figure out what are we going to give Asim? What are we going to give Asim? Um, and I just said, hey, look, um, I've been like really part of this movement around you know green software. 
Um, I'm talking to all these people. It's a passion area of mine. Like, let me incubate like a team. Let me let me focus in on this one question. And uh, you know, the stars aligned, and that they allowed me to kind of just focus in on that area. And that's when I became the green cloud advocacy lead at Microsoft. And then eventually, I just moved over to Intel, and I can, that, that's kind of and that, that's how we launched the Green Software Foundation. And then I moved over to Intel. Psychedelic medicine is kind of completely tangential to all of that. So about seven years ago, um, you know, honestly, I, was, I used to, I, I used to suffer from very significant depression, and I really went through quite a few different modalities. I was looking at. Uh, meditation used to be a very large part of my my you know, daily routine, as well as just a, a number of other things that I would I was I was trying. Meditation is extremely powerful. I extremely recommend meditation. But then I discovered, um, actually, for many many decades, psychedelics were actively being used and as uh, as you know treatment mechanisms. There's over 20,000 academic peer-reviewed papers on the use of psychedelics in, in kind of a, a wide variety of these areas. But then it just got banned by uh, Richard Nixon because he didn't like the people who were in the psychedelic movement and he wanted to find reasons to put them in jail. And that unfortunately just spread. It's just a really unfortunate thing and then and it became illegal. And the way he made it illegal was he made it illegal so there was uh, called Schedule One, which means there are no medical uses for it, usages for it. Cocaine, FYI, is Schedule Two. Um, so uh, you know, there's there's an interesting little thing there. That's so, crazy. But now, that's crazy, right? <laughs> but like now, now what's happening? Based on the large part on that study that Tim Ferriss funded, uh, which is in the John, Johns Hopkins University. Now there's like this big resurgence of, of research in this space. It's actually, a, there's now like multiple, like Australia just legalized it. There's multiple countries in the world which are changing their legislation over it. And there's been a, a large kind of movement over the, over the last couple of years to um, to really kind of explore this space and this space. And you know, sometimes it's called a psychedelic medicine movement. Sometimes it's called, you know, plant-based medicines. And yeah, I've been doing a lot of those, uh, mo mostly ayahuasca, but a lot of those ceremonies over the last um, seven years. Um, I do them a couple of times a year. And I'd say my, my journey in the psychedelic medicine space and my growth in there as a human being and as a spiritual entity has really, uh, I, I wouldn't have even remotely be, have been able to do what I've done here in this space without, without that space. <laughs> And, and I'm happy to ever, if anybody ever has any questions about it, I'm, I'm very open on it. It's, it's on my profiles on socials. I write article, I wrote an article about it recently. So I'm always happy to answer any questions on, on that for anybody. That's, that's one of my missions recently, I realized was to advocate for this space, um, to be a beacon. And thank you for the opportunity mm -hmm. to like tell everybody about it. Cause it is, it is an area I'm trying to destigmatize. Yeah, but you're welcome. Uh, you know, I feel that a lot of what we're doing is actually in tech showing how complex the system is but actually if you take an even bigger point of view i think it's good that you kind of break the silos in which we positions our professional life or personal life or spiritual life and, and and understanding that everything is somehow pretty strongly connected helps us to first be a bit more humble because one effect at some point in one space could have like ripple effects in others. And also kind of reconnecting with 
our ecosystem, our biosphere, nature, which is a word you want. Thanks a lot for sharing. Uh, that was a kind of intimate. So thanks for your openness. Going back to, yes, you said you had a pretty astonishing trend and success professionally uh, last year and even before, uh, for sure. You've been um, a beacon, I would say, uh, in the green software movement. And actually, that's true now for the Green Software Foundation. And my question would be, you know, why so much traction for the Green Software Foundation? And I know that in the 2023 edition of DCAP Software, I guess this online conference is in two weeks' time. Am I right? Yep. 16th of November. Okay. Thanks a lot. Uh, and of course, we'll, we'll put the link in the show notes as every other references that we mention in this episode. Um, but you will give the introduction talk with uh, Adam and Namrata, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and one of the aspects is 2023 in review. So could we have some teasers, some previews? Was 2023 a good year for the Green Software Foundation and why? Why do you see uh, their trends? Well, it was um, uh, just to talk very openly and honestly, I think 2023, and we're still in it, but like if you remember at the start of the year, it was a very interesting, challenging time for the whole industry. I mean, everybody was letting everybody go. Um, there was really big question marks over, you know, what's, you know, what's happening in the ecosystem. You know, as, as a person who leads a foundation where, you know, we are funded through membership fees, like I was, I was started off this year with a little bit of trepidation, a little bit of concern, um, because, you know, I, I knew the pressures that were on organizations to cut budgets. And, you know, we, as much as we are run through volunteers, like there are, there are staff and there are costs and we have to like maintain it. And, you know, as an ED, I don't, you don't I don't, I never wanted to give anybody any bad news. So that was like, for me, like a bit of a, a worry. So at the start of the year, we, my goal for the year was mostly to ensure that we could continue functioning. That was my initial thoughts at the start of the year was like, oh my word, the world's going to a terrible place. We don't know whether, I know other foundations that have really lost a lot of funding and they're in, are in significant issues. And so I was like, hey, okay, as an ED, let's be, let's be careful. We, we've got this mission. We're trying to del deliver and drive it. Let's make sure we can keep it going. And the reality is, and, and this is the thing that so surprised me about us, is that we've grown over the year. Um, we kept on growing, we kept on growing, we kept on growing. Um, and I, I took a, a, an opportunity and I think it was, a we, we, we had a healthy budget and then, you know, there are a lot of people suddenly on the market of such wonderful talent and we've now grown a, such a wonderful team in the foundation, very, very strong in their field. And we were just in a great situation. So we've, 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 we've a grown a great staff really strong staff who've been driving some amazing work throughout this year. I've got a quick question. How many people are actually working for the Green Software Foundation? So we have um, about, oh, I don't know, I keep on, because we have quite a lot of staff that are uh, part-time. Mm. Uh, we have one, two, three, four, five, five full-time, eight full-time staff members um eight, eight full-time staff members yeah currently right now uh some of them might be on more of a temporary full-time contract but we have like you know uh definitely five people who are just completely full-time all the way through and also other people who are allocated from the linux foundation on a part-time permanent part-time basis yes yeah, so we have like uh 
uh, are good staff. Um, but also quite a lot of quite a lot of because we because we do a lot of things like you know we, we don't have a full time designer but we have a designer we don't have a full time web developer we've got a developer we have writers uh, we have multiple writers on staff we have uh, a design we have like multiple people who we who we go out to on a, on an ad hoc basis and I see I recall you you're not full time working for the Green Software Foundation because you've you've got your job at Intel also or are you now fully allocated by Intel to uh, the Green Software Foundation? I'm, I'm not fully allocated by Intel to the Green so- Software Foundation. So, so like we have like strange bylaws. We have like this, this role of chairperson, which is has to be an unpaid position and has to be from, has to be a role. It is the leader of the organization and, it's, and it has to be one of the steering member organizations. So yeah, that, that's me. And I'm very generously, you know, uh, offered through, uh, you know, my, my role at Intel pays for my my role here. I put I I, I do say I have to I kind of have two full time jobs. Um, yeah. It's kind of my life right now. <laughs> I have a I have a calendar that is crazy. I have like multiple admin supports to help me just figure out and navigate the whole space. But yeah, that's kind of my world right now. I understand now. why yeah. you need so much meditation. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but okay, it's so coming back to the initial question because you mentioned. Uh, the means, the budget, and the fact that you've been able to to secure your fundings and actually to grow, but how do you explain the success you made in the in the tech industry today? So I think that's a, and I think one, I, I I've been kind of contemplating some because it's hard to pin down. I'll be honest with you, it's really it's really hard to pin down. I think we we have a very good reputation um, amongst the industry. We have a very good reputation uh, amongst nonprofits and, and, and academia. We, we have like, we're a rare foundation in that we have representation from across the board. I would say there's a couple of like, uh, ways of, ways of working that we have that I think are, are quite fundamental. Like when the foundation first started, like there was hardly anybody out there and then organ- everybody was kind of asking themselves, like everybody's telling me, I remember one organization came to me and said, you know what, Microsoft tells me this, Amazon tells me that, and Google tells me this. I don't really know what to do. And that was kind of like that. It was like, I just, there's everybody's held, every, and then there's other organizations telling me this and this other thing, and then there's this paper over here and then that over there. And so the the, the, word, the one word we were trying, one mantra we had at the start was like trust. Like we need to create a trusted ecosystem. We need to create a place where people can trust. And so... Um, that's actually why when we formed, we formed as, as what's called a standards body. So we are actually a standards body at our heart who also do open source, who also do these other things. And that means that we, when you're a standards body, we have so many rules around collaboration. Like, like the open source found, not to criticize open source foundations, but open source foundations do not have those rules which makes for a less, I think it makes for a much more collaborative environment inside the Green Software Foundation than in other organizations. For instance, we run a lot of our projects and a lot of all of our working groups and everything through a consensus model. That means that um, every organization has got to agree before we move forward. And we also have a rule where the... um, you know, if you're a nonprofit, I always said at the start, it doesn't matter if you're Microsoft with 100,000 employees or you're a nonprofit with 10, you actually hold the same amount of power inside the Green Software Foundation as each other. When I was first forming it, like a, a lot of nonprofits were, I was big into nonprofits, like we want, we want to create a big church, have everybody who's talking about the space here. And they were like, we don't want to join. We get, we've joined other foundations. We just get bullied by the, the enterprises. 
our voices just get get silenced. We don't really you just use us as effectively greenwashing for your for your things. And I was like, look, trust you know me. I'm not a greenwash. I, I'm not doing this to greenwash. I had a reputation previously. Um, we have these rules. Like you can join, and we we have a very specific way of working, which is like if you're in a working group. And you do not like what is happening. You you do not like a change that is being made to a spec. You do not like a wording that is being proposed for a white paper. You have to say the words, I object. It can't just be like a strong argument. You have to, it's like a, it's like a magic incantation. You have to say the words, I object, uh, either written or spoken. And then we actually have like very specific rules for how we get over that objection. And eventually, if we can't get over it through discussion, we have a voting mechanism. So, like, we have this, like, extremely collaborative mechanism where anything that we create is, like, you know that everybody had the opportunity to say no. Um, so when we actually publish something, so we publish something at the SDI specification, the advantage of it is like anybody out there can create a spec. It's so easy to create a spec. It's, it's, it's nothing. It's like you just write something out. And a lot of other organizations, it's just one or two organizations just write a spec and go, are you all all right with this? And they're like, I, don't know. I wasn't part of the meeting. Whereas when we published the SCI, every single organization had specific input into that. And so because of this mechanism that we have, like when we release the SCI, like everybody's already adopting it because they've already been discussing it intensely inside their organization. It's already being used in academic research, it's already being used in all these areas. It's really ridiculously hard. The consensus model is agonizing, honestly. Sometimes you just want to go like, okay, I'll make the call. But you I'm like it's like it's a very like it, it it's the thing I think that creates the trust. Because that in that allows the org member organizations and nonprofits, the academics to engage, because they know that their voice is going to matter. And then when we release something, it allows people to trust what we release, because they're like, "Well, look at all those names behind it, and they really are behind it." So I, I always use the word trust. I think trust is what this space needed, and trust is what we're trying to provide. Before moving to everything you do uh, concretely, because what you've explain is super super important and i'd like to go a bit more in depth and i see yeah i've got like this question about the potential downside which is until when or until how many could it work because a consensus with 10 is hard to obtain with 100 is ridiculously hard and with 1000 i don't even know if it's possible so how do you foresee uh, the future and is it connected, which is kind of my question number two, to a very strict uh, onboarding process that you don't welcome anyone or you welcome anyone but following very strict rules that will avoid to have some kind of a malicious dissonant insiders with the general philosophy? Yeah. So um, uh, I think what I try and educate people on is like consensus is ridiculously hard, but However hard the consensus is, like if you're saying if there's, if there's a thousand people we need to get around to consensus, that's actually good because that means that once you get people eventually put all that effort in and all that negotiation in, um, you've got a thousand people who are about to adopt something. So that's like you, you've kick-started that whole process. 
we have mechanisms where like people don't um it, we we do have like a voting mechanism which we've rarely used i will say that there have been and i there have been some extreme and you know we're in the sustainability space so everybody in the sustainability space we all care about the same thing but we have different views on certain topics so there are, and then we have very powerful views on those topics there have been some extremely tense you know i object things where Everybody is a wonderful human being who deeply care, passionately cares about it, and there's not really a clear path forward. But we've never actually had to uh, go to a. Uh, we've always found we've always found a compromise all the way through. Yeah. Like, okay. So you do have this kind of nuclear option. Yeah. That is the big stick. That hey, if we don't manage to get consensus, there is another way, and nobody wants to use it. But hey, it's here, so it kind of drives. Um, yeah, people toward a collaborative mode. Okay, but the truth is, I think I think that I used to be very nervous about this model because it was like it it wasn't like um, it was a strong recommendation to me at the start, and I was like, okay, uh, I'm used to more like command and control structures. I now fully trust the process of getting a bunch of passionate people, passionate, knowledgeable people together on a subject. As long as that group is large enough and diverse enough. You will always get to the right solution. I'm a very trusting of that of that whole process. We also do have projects which you don't run through consensus, so like more of a like open source projects. We actually have like if you feel it's literally a piece of a piece of software. We're not going to like have have a we're not going to have a consensus in every single pull request merge. Yeah, well, obviously. But we have like but we have like a slightly different mechanism called graduation, which is a just. But once you graduate, you're like you know you're free to you're you're free to like do what you want. Um, and there's still a lot of oversight. So talking about um, commit, <laughs> uh, let, let's deep dive. And that was that was very very enlightening on the work of the Green Software Foundation. And let's deep dive a bit on what actually you provide, because you know I had a, obviously a quick look uh, on the Green Software Foundation websites. Um, well, it, it would make anyone realize that the GSF provides a lot of tools. Uh, uh, just to name a few principles on green software engineering, SCI, as you already mentioned, Carbon Aware SDK, the green software maturity metric that uh, Anne Curie very recently uh, advocated, and, and I, I was not aware of it, so of course I had to look at it. The software carbon efficiency rating. Uh, you've got also community tools as uh, the green software champions or as a state of green software study. So there are quite a lot of them. Could you try to make sense of them? What connects them and what are they interesting or important? So there's a, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of people kind of engaging on, on, on a lot of different fronts in the foundation. We have like four main, main working groups, standards, policy, uh, uh, community, and open source. So standards one is, is the software carbon intensity specification. That was kind of the, because we're a standards body. So that's that we have like most of our, most of our projects are, are, are in that area because we are just like an expert at making standards and getting people to sit and agree and, and all other stuff. So software carbon intensity specification is a thing that I'm like so incredibly proud of because that specification was built by people who have, been had been actively trying to measure the emissions of software inside their organizations using the GHG or other mechanisms for a while, had seen the real limitations of that protocol when applied to software, and had, you know, when they first started off 
um, you know, the, the process of building the SCI, they had like this, like, what do we want this to be? What do we want this to drive? And there were some very early decisions. I'm, I was I was staring at this 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 Zoom room full of people, just like with such pride of like, wow, you all really are making wonderful decisions here. But they were like, we want to make sure that the spec drives certain behaviors. We don't want the behaviors that we know are good to be an accidental byproduct of a spec, which is often what happens. We want we these are the behaviors that you, what we want. What is the spec that we need to drive these behaviors? We need people to invest in more energy-efficient software. We need people to into making software more energy-efficient. We need people to invest in using fewer servers, in, in using less embodied carbon, using less hardware. And we need people to invest in making software carbon aware. Like these are the things that these people had been trying for years inside their organizations to get like effort into. And they were like, the GHG isn't helping us. It's not driving any of this stuff. And in fact, it's, it's harming a lot of our efforts. Um, the market-based emissions uh, loophole in, in GHG kills off any effort to make any, any work in the energy efficiency space. It's just, it just does not happen. It, ha it has been changing recently. Fortunately, yeah, there's yeah. there's movements, but unless until that, yeah, toward a location based rather than market based approach. But yeah, I was I was very very relieved when I read the latest SCI uh, specification when it became really public, the public version to see that embedded carbon was taken into consideration. That oh, the, yeah. no, the, the main first focus was you reduce everything and offset is just what has absolutely to remain, and that offset is almost off the table that that's not the topic the topic is really yeah yeah it's it's about reduction reduction, yeah, it's about reduction. we say it's about elimination like you only way to reduce yeah. your score is to eliminate your emissions um so that's kind of another, but a lot but that really like um when you talk about a lot of our projects and a lot of the work we do it's really about measurement can i ask one final question about the sci because i i know that a lot of people listening to the podcast are you know developers designers and they can truly leverage this kind of tool but my question is do you believe that today the sci has closed the gap with the ghg protocol and let, let me elaborate a bit on it because that's really something I'm, I'm struggling with some clients is that the sci helps definitely you to steer uh, the decarbonization of your software in the right direction especially taking into account the embedded carbon and not only energy which is electricity consumption actually but when you say, okay, I wrote this piece of software and I now believe that when I run it, it emits, I don't know, several kilos of a greenhouse gas or CO2 equivalent. It's not really easy to connect with one bucket, one slot in the GHG protocol because it will tell you, okay, so but split it between electricity consumption, what are the goods you buy or what are the services you, you, you bought to build this um this software so do you believe that actually this gap could be closed at some point do you believe it has already been closed or actually doesn't really matter because yeah you know it's a tool to steer people to the right direction and at some point you will also see obviously the benefit in uh greenhouse gas uh, protocol reporting even if it's not directly connected you know one line related to another so I would say that they're they're, compl they're completely different tools. 
you me- when you measure something, you're trying to find the answer to a question. GHG is just a different set of questions than uh, SCI. GHG is trying to answer the very specific question, what is one organization's emissions separate to another organization's emissions? Because the unit of pressure, responsibility, accountability is an organization. And the belief is that if you tell an organization what their emissions are, they will somehow drive reductions. The SCI is kind of just trying to answer the, a, a, a different question. It's trying to answer what it, what is the intensity of a piece of software? Because I always argue, I don't, I, don't, I, don't even, I don't even want the SCI ever to be used in a reporting context like that. Because we want, we are trying to drive behavior change through the SCI rather than just ticking a box of a, of a, of a you know, what are your carbon emissions? The fact that the car, we always say this, it's actually, it doesn't even matter what the carbon emission value on the right hand side of the SCI is. All that matters is that the actions that you take that we know are actions that drive down emissions, i.e. reduce electricity consumption, will reduce that score. If you have that connection, that's how you drive behavior change. You, and as somebody who has worked in organizations, for, and the GHG serves a very important function, which is we need to know of the total carbon budget, what is one organization or one country responsible for versus another one. It does not drive behavior change. If you do, if you make your software consume less energy, it is extremely unlikely that that will be reflected in the GHG reporting numbers for your organization. If you make your application carbon aware, it is extremely, 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 it's impossible for that to be reflected in your organization's carbon reporting number. Because of that complete break in behaviors and numerical reporting, it does not drive behavior change. That's that's the really important thing. That's the thing that I realized over the years. What happens oftentimes inside organizations, and I've seen it multiple times, is that people spend ages calculating their carbon footprint, and then you you submit a PDF and everybody's happy, and then you go away and do the same thing next year. How has that action, can you connect the dot between programs inside your organization that are trying to search for funding and, and we know 100% will reduce emissions. And, and this reporting mechanism, which doesn't care about keeping those connections from you know, actions that you take to this carbon figure, that is actually what's so important. That's the kind of a message I'm really trying to get along the world. It, does, it doesn't matter. Calculating your carbon footprint does not matter. If you, in that process have broken the understanding of the actions that you can take to drive down that number. Now, that's oftentimes what happens because calculate number is so unbelievably hard. You use a thousand spreadsheets, you copy values from one spreadsheet to another, and you lose, you lose that relationship. And then at the end of the day, there's some team going, you know, I need a million dollars. I'm pretty sure I can reduce our, you know, our actual emissions by 10%. And then people go, well, you might be able to reduce actual emissions by 10%, but the way we calculate our carbon 
with the assumptions that we make and the averages we've had to use. And our auditors have insisted that we can't use that figure. We have to use that figure. So unfortunately, even though you could actually reduce 10% of, of physical carbon emissions, the way we measure doesn't recognize that that work and therefore that work will not happen that is that is what i'm seeing happening multiple times and repeatedly and that is what i think is broken about our space right now yeah i agree with you that's what that's why you need the chief sustainability officer to have a very open and transparent discussion with cto and cio because they both need to acknowledge that they will have the same goals not using exactly the same tools and that kind of a the GHG audit end of the year is kind of a lagging indicator and in that some other indicators that could you know become the sustainability dashboard of any CTO or any CIO uh, around the globe is more in need of leading indicators and you mm. know that at the end of the day yeah. you will achieve the same results but you need to understand also that the, the bridges are not there and it's not just copy pasting and it will work I'm very happy that you made the point because that yeah I think I will refer to you <laughs> It's like the director of the Green Software Foundation said so. So please believe me that you can track multiple things, uh, the same things or the same thing uh, in different ways. And that actually that's a very consistent way to work so that you will achieve meaningful progress rather than just, you know, one North Star than, you know, sometimes steer you in the wrong direction. Yeah. And, and I find that quite frustrating and annoying. I always say like when I go to like a doctor for a health check, like they don't just like um, weigh me and then that's it. They weigh me, they check my height, you you see your blood pressure, you see this. There's all of these things that you need to measure, all completely different units. They're very different ways of measuring. So you understand what is going on and what do you need to do. And our complete obsession with this one not just carbon value, but one methodology of measuring carbon and assuming that that one, there's this one magical way of measuring which will inform you of all of the things that you need. It's like, it's like an organization saying the only metric every single department needs to know is profit. And you should be able to figure everything else out. You should be able to figure everything else out from profit. Yeah, no, I don't need that. I need to know employee satisfaction. I need to know customer happiness. I need to know how many people are, are visiting my website, how many people are dropping up. I need to know all these things. But And that's the same we need in the sustainability space. Fully agree. That reminds me, you know, the crazy focus we had in the 80s and the 90s about fat. You know, our fat is the evil fat, 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 fat. And then when you scratch the surface, you realize that it was... Half of the studies were sponsored by the sugar industry. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, the issue is not that. I mean, don't get me wrong. Eating too fatty uh, can 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 lead to um, a significant disease, but sugar is way more an issue than fat. It's quite kind of funny. Obviously, we, we talked a lot about the SCI, which is so much important, software carbon intensity. But there are a lot of other uh, initiatives going on. Do you fancy giving us a tour or maybe highlighting what could be the most beneficial for um, doers in the tech industry? So definitely recommend uh, the training that we have, um, learn.greensoftware.foundation, which is oftentimes, it used to be called the principles. Um, so that has been just kind of like this effort just to get everybody on the same page on like, oh, look, before we didn't, we weren't even all using the same terms. 
we, and we, everybody, all conversations were confusing. So that's just a, a way of getting everybody on the same page, everybody in the same language. Even if you're having a converse, even if you're on the same page and you and you're having a conversation with a customer or something or or, or somebody else, you can send them to our training. You can send them that training um, to to get uh, to get on the same page. Where we're working on in the future in terms of that is hopefully uh, next year we'll be working on more uh, certification. Still working with the Linux Foundation. So we're, we're we're still we're having some conversations where to where to land that right now. But yeah, we'll we'll probably want to do it for free, which is a, a challenge for the cost structure of the of, of how Linux Foundation uh, does that. But yeah, so um so that's kind of so our education arm is is is, is going more in in that. And again, all of this stuff is stuff that we do like through consensus through our members. So some of the stuff is really depends on whether the members feel. This is an area that they want to kind of invest their time into. Um, there's a lot of work going on in the standard space. One project I want to like highlight is a project that I've been particularly putting a lot of my personal attention in. There's a lot of there's a lot of interest from our members in this particular project, and we're going to be announcing it at DCARB. It's called Impact Framework, and what it is, it's a tool to allow you to measure. The environmental impact of of software. Now it won't scan anything. It won't do anything. You have to manually create a manifest file, a YAML file to describe everything. But like, here's here's what we're tired of. Here's what like what happens all the time is like somebody measures a piece of software or makes a claim about a measurement or a user story or something like that, and it's always written up as like uh, in English in like some PDF or a Markdown file. No, it's just like a, it's like someone writing a blog post. Like it's no, there's no structure to it. What this is is like a YAML file where you're, you're, you gather some user data about your application workloads. This is this is the backend workloads. This is this is the utilizations. This is this. This is that. This is the other. You gather data. You put it into a YAML file, and then you actually like very explicitly say, "Hey, look, you you can define a pipeline of comp- of computation." And again, it's all in the YAML. You can you can install plugins for all different types of models that you want to use. And we've standardized the interface to models. So let's say you want to use uh, Boa Vista's model. You just use, I'm using the Boa Vista model. And then, then, then let's say, you know what, I actually um, want to use uh, what times, what time are big supporters of the marginal, you know, um, emission factors for and uh, electricity maps are big supporters. So I want to use what time versus, versus, versus electricity maps. I want to use, and so you can really define, so you, you not only, you're putting your data in this manifest file, but then you're you're explicitly stating your method your methodology of calculation. This is how I'm taking that utilization figure and I'm turning it into carbon, and it's all there. It's all in a manifest file. So when you report a carbon figure, you're not telling me a carbon figure. You're sending me a YAML file that I will then execute, and I will then see what your carbon figure is. And then do you know what? I don't like some of your assumptions that you've made. I don't like the fact that you've used this coefficient for the database. I think you're being a bit too generous there. I'm going to use my coefficient. I don't like the fact that you use values from that paper for your networking. I prefer the values from that paper. So it's making the whole thing just fully transparent. Here's the man. You're not just people are not just telling you what your carbon emissions are. Here's your man. Here is my here is my workings out. Here is my manifest file. The future that I see is that every open source project in the world has this YAML file in its, in its root directory. And you know, like you know what the 
emissions profile of this application is. My dream is in the future, every single software product that's released, every single version of it will come with one of these manifest files. There's so many use cases that people are coming up with it for this thing. But yeah, that, that is a project I'm extremely excited about. I, I, I put a lot of my personal effort into it and energy, and I think it's going to be quite transformative in the industry. And actually, I didn't realize how deep it was, yeah. <laughs> how structural, I would say, yeah. uh, it, it could be. Um, for me, it was more like an extension of the SCI, but it, it no, it's, um, it's more rooted in, yeah, it has a huge potential of making significant change. And fun fact is, while you were talking about it, I was like, mm -hmm. that could be like a box to be ticked in the software green software maturity metrics, you know, uh, that, okay, uh, if you are truly at this level of maturity, all your code will have this YAML file, et cetera, et cetera. Is, is it kind of the idea as well? Yeah, I think I, we've not talked to it with, with, with Anya. Unfortunately, a lot of, we're still, still pre-alpha, so I'm, I'm trying to get to the point where a lot of what I've just explained to to you would be just obvious by looking at the project. But unfortunately, there's a lot of it's just all code hidden away in places. But yeah, that would be that would be an ideal ideal place. Is like um, is that I've even had somebody say they want to create a um, a they're selling more of a physical product and they want to create a QR code which would point people to the YAML file of that because you can do it for physical products as well. There's nothing stopping you from from using this YAML file. As a LCA for a, for physical stuff as well. So yeah, I would love to talk about all the other projects as well, the tools, etc. But being mindful of uh, our time, um, I'd like to talk a bit about the interaction of the Green Software Foundation with the rest of the ecosystem. I understood from your earlier description that your strategy is mostly to produce norms and and methods and standards. Because this is what you are excellent at, quoting yourself. But yeah, that's my that's my advice as well. But that leads me to a very important question, which is how do you connect with other initiatives in Europe? You've mentioned Boavista. There are also SustainableIT.org. There are this initiative in Germany around the Blue Angel label, uh, Blue Angel uh, label uh, green software. I don't remember the German word for it. Obviously, in France, you've got several big initiatives like the ENR, um, uh, Sustainable IT. How did it translate it? IT, IT Sustainability Institute or something like that. Institut du Numérique Responsable. Oh, yeah, I know that one. In Switzerland yeah. and, and in Belgium. And, and actually, it could go all the way up to, so we already mentioned the GHG protocol, GR, but do you plan at some point to become ISO norms? So how do you see yourself in this ecosystem? Oh, sure. FYI, from, from, from just because you mentioned ISO, yeah, the, the SCI is actually now an, an ISO-approved uh, specification. So we've gone through all, the, all those processes and it was ratified by 195 countries, which is, I didn't know that was the actual process for the ISO. But yeah, we, we, we adjusted it based on their feedback. So that, 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 that is that. So I'll just tell you, like, one of the things that we, we, we have, like, a theory of change, which was developed through our members, which is basically, like, three pillars. We need changes in uh, knowledge. We need changes in tooling. And we need changes in culture. So culture is a big one. We need we need a cultural change in order for like people to prioritize a lot of these things. So that's kind of like we, we went through this whole exercise. We did this theory of change, and then we went through this exercise of like, well, what are all the things that need to change in the world to make all of those things happen? 
And then we went through the exercise of like, well, are we even the right organization to make that change? Because we don't have to be the right organization. And one of the things that we're we're doing a lot more now is we're, um, especially amongst the LF foundations, because in a lot of the LF foundations, there is like a working group or an arm or like an, there's a sustainability focused little team inside there focusing how to do that part of that found now whatever that foundation's focus areas is more sustainably. So, and also there's multiple organizations like the ones you mentioned out there as well. The, our, our working group that's responsible for kind of connecting all those dots is the policy working group. But there's also, there's so, there's so many dots and everybody's a volunteer. And we've even, even with the staff, there's just too many, too many things going on. So one of the things we want to start doing for next year, so actually, some of those you mentioned, we actually do have very specific arrangements with. So with, with Sustainability IT Org, we have an MOU understanding and that they're collaborating together on, on a piece of work in the policy working group. Um, and with some of the others are, are members of the foundation. But one thing we really want to start doing from next year is I think we're going to call them roundtables, which are um, closed door meetings. In fact, I think I stole the idea from Boa Vista because they were doing this a while ago. Um, but closed door meetings with Chatham House rules, so you you have a bit, bit of freedom to talk about. Well, we invite everybody together, like once a, once one day a quarter. We'll we'll do the we'll arrange everything, um, and we will just talk to each other. And I think that's just the most important thing: just talk to each other. And it's there's so much going on; it's hard for you to keep a track. It's not it's not the case that people are stepping on each other's toes. We're just all busy, and no one knows. You just you've, you've you've barely got enough time to figure out what you what you're doing. So trying to keep an eye on what everybody else is doing is is, is you just don't have the time. So we want to create an environment where we bring everybody together, and we just we talk. Maybe we do a show and tell, and we just keep the lines of communication open. And then we we do we do things like, hey, look, we were going to do X, but you seem like you're much more suited. And why don't you do? Why don't you focus on X? You focus on Y, and you focus on Z. And then we'll all support each other. We really want to create that kind of that kind of uh, collaborative. Now that's what we do. We're coll- we're a collaborative organization. Now, the way I want us to to to, to be is much more like to to help everybody get together, to help the whole ecosystem get together, and and just all be moving in the same direction. And again, we're not all we're not all being. We're just all busy. That's the only if there if there is kind of like stuff that's not moving in the same direction, it's just because we're busy most of the time. Or maybe there's difference of opinions that could be there as well. But um, but there's no like in, we're not like competitors where we're kind of intentionally trying to come up with different things at the same time. So that's that's the idea. So if we can just get everybody together, we'll, uh, we'll we'll figure it out. So that's that's the plan for that at least. Well. I love the philosophy, Asim, uh, because actually, but I know that you know, but you know since a few minutes, so it's still a bit of a surprise for you, I guess, that we will have a Green IO conference in Paris, December the 8th. And of course, all the listeners can get a free tickets. So it's just a matter of pinging me on LinkedIn or via email, but most of the listeners, they already know it. And this conference, I really want to have a roundtable with most of the organizations. And I didn't know that you wanted to join, to create this roundtable approaches for 2024. I think this is absolutely awesome. Um, But as you know, it's also why I launched this podcast. This is a very DNA of uh, the Green IO podcast. So congratulations. 
And obviously, I hope that either you or a representative from the Green Software Foundation will be able to join the on-site roundtable in Paris with many other organizations to discuss about collaboration, steering things in the right direction, and also acknowledging our differences because this is how the world works and how it moves beautifully uh, toward a more sustainable future, hopefully. So, but that's that's kind of funny. I didn't expect uh, this announcement, so pretty cool. And now closing the podcast, I've got my two last questions. What piece of news would you like to share that recently uplifted you when it comes to our move toward sustainability and maybe a bit more digital sustainability? So I I suppose the the news that I would... That gives me the most optimism is just um, I'm 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 a I'm a big believer in the fact that we need to have you know a deep cultural shift in society to actually make a solution here. I don't I don't think this is going to be. I think everything else just really stems from there. Um, I think there's been a massive shift up to up to this point, but um, but that's really what I'm what what makes me kind of excited about this is just the number of people. And I'm very lucky to speak to a lot of people, but the number of people like yourself and others in this space who are, you know, just talking about these questions. And I think that's, that's, that's all you really need to have is just have people talking about these questions. That is 99% of the challenge. I remember once uh, I was speaking at a conference uh, in sustainability, and it still it still comes to me quite often. Which was, you know, afterwards the audience came up to me and they said, "You know what? You're the first person who's ever spoken to me about sustainability and was giving me solutions." And they were energized, and they were full. And the other speaker, and he's quite famous. I'm not going to name him, but like the, his fundamental nature of his talk was like very doom and gloom. Um, in fact, this is why I, I do not. I don't remotely talk about any of the aspects of climate change. I don't I don't think it matters. I just we just focus on on the solution. And I think that's what I'm seeing a lot more is kind of like I'm seeing a cultural shift with people like really going, right, let's dig in. We're focusing on solutions. Okay, you do X, you do Y. This is this is the solution. Oh, the Green Software Foundation said what? Well, it said do that. Let's focus on that. Or oh, so and so said that. And it's like I'm I'm seeing it. I'm seeing that kind of action happening um and that kind of conversation happening i always said like that for for us in our in our part of the space all we really need to do is is just to have people when things are being proposed uh when features are being proposed to actually say hey look what is what is the sustainability aspect of this sustainability is not the most important thing for everybody it will never be security is important all those other things are important but as long as we can just have somebody go what about sustainability just having to ask that question is enough for me because i think that we're there now we're there at the table with everything else and now it's just a now we're just doing a negotiation and that's a culture shift like like honestly like four years ago like if any if there was even one article published which mentioned anything around green software anything about kind of tech sustainability we all like lost our heads over it and now, like the foundation's got like a weekly newsletter where we're just jamming it full of information about all the news that's going on. You've got your podcast, we've got ours. There's loads. Of, there's loads of material out there. I talk to multiple organisations that have said to me very explicitly, "We are willing to spend more on sustainability 
this year it's been more challenging to get that kind of answer from an organization but the fact that we were still getting it is a really positive sign so so from where i sit i i'm just seeing like a, a hockey stick curve up so i always get a lot of a lot of um a lot of uh inspiration but i am I'm one of the things i'm very adamant out about and it's one of the value it's one of the values of the foundation is that we we focus very much on solutions we talk about solutions we don't talk about problems um I, i'm not in that space i don't care i've got enough people with climate anxiety who are just sitting there and, and they just get shouted at all the time by people about how everything's going to everything's going to pop doesn't matter like knuckle down work on solutions that's that's kind of what gives me a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of um yeah a lot of inspiration Thanks a lot for joining. Thanks a lot for all those great insights that you shared with us and hope to see you soon in Paris or somewhere else. Thank you so much for having me here and hopefully see you at an event soon. Oh, and just a, another final statement, which is please come and please visit our, our, the Decarb and I software event, which is happening on the 16th of November. It's online. It's free. It's about two and a half hours. We've got speakers, community speakers from all over talking about various topics. We'll be talking about some of the releases, some of the, the, the champions program, which I've not even mentioned, but we're launching like an MVP style champions program. Um, the impact framework, a bunch of other things uh, uh, we'll be talking about. And if you go to decarb.greensoftware.foundation, um, that's where you can sign up. Thank you for listening to this Green IO episode. In episode 28, we will talk about AI but artificial intelligence with a purpose, AI for good or data for good as we see it labelled quite often. I will have the pleasure to host Luel Green and Theo Alves da Costa, the founders of Data for Good, who made the headlines this month with their data visualization of the 422 carbon bombs who might detonate worldwide. And Anastasis Tamatis, the founder of Data for Kia, the first data for good impact-driven startup in Greece, his claim, providing ESG and sustainability data integration, management, and analytics. Stay tuned. Before you leave, a small message from our sponsor. No, I'm kidding. Greenow is a free and independent podcast, and so we need your help to keep it that way. You can help us by supporting us on TP, the link is in the episode notes, I also give online and on-site conferences and facilitate workshops about climate change and digital sustainability. So do get in touch if that interests you. It's a good way to allow me to keep investing in the podcast. Full disclosure, each episode takes me roughly 15 hours of work, finding the guests, convincing them, researching the topics, and it costs between three and 400 euros to produce. Now, you know everything. If you cannot donate, that's fine. You can support us by spreading the word rate the podcast five stars on Apple and Spotify, share an episode on social media or directly with a relative, that's fine. Seriously, thanks for your support. It means a lot to us, us being me, but also Tammy Levitt, our amazing podcast producer, and Gilles Tellier, our amazing podcast curator. And stay tuned by subscribing to Green.io on your favorite podcast platform or via the Green.io mailing list. The link is in the episode notes, but you already know the drill. Every two weeks, you will get more insights and premium content to help you, the responsible technologist scattered all over the world, build a greener digital world. One bite at a time.